Um, if I haven't said hi, my name's Nigel. I'm the pastor of the church here. Um, just reiterate the welcome um, from Dave. It's really good to see you. Dave mentioned in the intro about a number of Christmas adverts. It's, it's the John Lewis classic, year by year. Um, the one that struck my attention this year is the one from PC World and Curry's. It stars um, Jeff Goldblum. There's a series of four adverts that have really caught my imagination and grabbed my attention. The second one is when there is a couple and the wife presents the couple with a present on a bed. And it's something that the husband didn't want. It's not the gadget that he longs for, but it is in fact, I've written it down, some peppermint talc powder that apparently works for this lady's father every single year. So he gets the same present every single year. And so she thinks she'll give it to her partner or husband. So as he rips open the present to see again the peppermint talc and powder, doom descends in his spirit. And then up comes Jeff Goldblum from the side of the bed. He was there all along. And he says, don't do it. Imagine what it really should be and could be. And he takes him back to a time in his life when he received a gift that he really wanted and said, imagine that this talcum powder that's designed for your feet to smell just like peppermint, just imagine that this is actually what you really want. In in effect, just lie and all will be well. And then the strap line at the bottom is something like, spare the act, go to Curry's. So if you really know what you want, go to Curry's and you get the gadget of your dream. This passage that is known so well about shepherds washing their socks by night and and watching their flocks by night as well, this passage that has shaped every nativity play that boys and girls have wrapped themselves up in mums and dads' kind of toweling robes, this passage has a lot to say about how we respond to the gift that we are given. The gift that we are given is in verses 1 to 7 of Luke 2. It's the birth of Jesus Christ, the greatest gift that we can ever and will ever receive. But the passage that follows, verses 8 to 20, well, there's three words I want us to think about. The first is response. The second one is peace. And the third one is fear. And I'm going to do something a little bit unusual, and I'm going to go through the passage in reverse. So I want us to think about how we respond to the gift of Jesus. And that's at the end of the passage in in verses 15 to 21. How do you respond to the gift of Jesus? That's what Luke wants us to think about. Look down at um, verses 15 to 21, please. You've got the shepherds and the angels and Mary. And zoom in in particular, please, in verse 20. Luke is talking about what they hear. Verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard, see that word, and seen. The angels said something to the shepherds, and then the shepherds went and did something with the news that they had heard. Look at verse 17, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told them about this child. And all who heard it, heard again, were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The word here in Greek is rhema, it means message. So the shepherds had received a message and they did something with the message. Notice the uh, transition here. There's stages, eyes down, verses 18 to 21. The angels speak to the shepherds. The shepherds then speak to everybody else. And then, beginning in verse 19, there's Mary. 
Luke's really drawn our attention to Mary in recent weeks. We're not to worship her. We thought about that at the back end of chapter 1. But we are to really think carefully about what she is as a model of faith. And Luke uh, presents her again. Look at verses 19. Or just think about the airtime or the sentences that she receives. Here's Mary. And what does she do? She receives a message and she responds in a certain way. On um, Friday, next Friday, no cards required. It's our anniversary for Joe and I. We were married 16 years ago, if I last, to Friday. There is one issue that keeps coming up in uh, our marriage, and that is one of hearing. Um, Joe speaks to me, and just, I think it's three times in 16 years, she said this to me, are you listening? Now, I think there is a difference between hearing and listening, I do my best, sometimes I struggle, but there is a difference between hearing and really listening. And so three times in 16 years or thereabouts, Joe has said to me, are you listening to me? And the answer from my point of view is, well, yes and no. Um, I heard what you said, but I can't remember what you said. Um, But look at what Mary does. Mary's received news. We know that she's been spoken to by the shepherds. We know from chapter one, she's been spoken to by an angel as well. But look at how Mary responds. It's interesting in many ways that you've got the ordinariness of the response. Because the shepherds, the shepherds, well, the shepherds get an angel who speaks to them. Mary, she gets the shepherds and the angels. Some of us get angels that speak to us. There are very few of us, even in Epsom. But we all get shepherds. And the question is, how will we respond? Verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. A couple of words are really important here. Treasure and ponder, they mean slightly different things. So the word ponder is a thinking, a reasoning kind of word. She's received information and she's trying to process it. She's doing a mental mind map of what are the implications of the news that I've received for my everyday life? How will this affect my future? What will this mean that I won't do, that I've done in the past? How will this change my fears and hopes and dreams? She's pondering. She's treasuring. That's the word ponder. She's trying to put this new kind of cataclysmic news in its context. She's pondering, she's thinking, she's reasoning. It's a mental, cerebral word. It's not just a mental assent to a concept. It's thinking, how does this news apply to my everyday life and experience? How does it reshape my future? She's pondering. She's also treasuring. She's treasuring verse 19. If pondering is to do with the head, treasuring is to do with the heart. This is a word to do with our emotions. She's thinking, this news I've just heard from the shepherds, this angel that spoke to me in chapter one, what does this do to my affections? How do I respond to this news about a saviour who will bring peace and hope to the world? A saviour for my sins, Mary would say, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean to me? So she's pondering in her head, she's treasuring in her heart. And it's this idea of treasuring is like a nurturing word. So I really don't 
care for animals, but I'm told that if you have a cat, there's a stage in your life where you just put milk on a spoon and kind of spoon feed them. I like fires. And so when you're trying to start a fire, you need to put a little bit of air in there and a bit of tender loving care. That's a man thing. Cats are for ladies, perhaps. But you get the point. One is a mental word, but the other one, the treasuring word, that, that's a nurturing word. There's something going on in her heart. Mary does not go to Waterstones of the first century and say, how do I do this? This is a discipline. No, this is an attitude of her heart. One is cerebral, one is reasoning and thinking, but one is an issue of the heart. And Mary's doing both. She's responding to the message from the shepherds. She's nurturing it. She's fanning this into flame in her heart. So here's a simple question for you. Who are you most like? This is not a point to be made just about a Sunday gathering as the church gathers corporately. If you're a Christian here this morning, who are you most like? Are you Mary-like in your daily experience of your relationship, your personal living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you someone who tries to delve into the scriptures for 10 minutes, for half an hour, for an hour every day, whatever you can do at whatever stage of life you're at? Are you someone who tries to read the Bible and say, this is what this means. Lord, help me to understand what this means. Are you someone that does good habits in your life so that you you ponder, so that you fan into flame new affections for Jesus? Who are you most like? Don't underestimate your ability to hear, but also to not hear what God would say to you through his word. Don't underestimate that. Are you Mary-like? To what degree are you like Mary? Or actually, are you like verse 18? Did you notice the crowd? And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Are you a wanderer? Are you someone who kind of thinks, wow but then it passes, perhaps like the crowd. Or are you someone who ponders and treasures? Who are you most like? Luke wants us to think about how we respond to the news of Jesus' birth, to the gift, the greatest gift that God will ever give to us. Who are you most like when you respond to Jesus day by day? Who are you most like as you think about Jesus' birth every Christmas time? It's there in verses 15 to 21. As we hit reverse again, verses 13 to 14, that's about peace. Okay? If the first point is about reverse, the second point is about peace. Let's read verses 13 to 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. There is a time every December when I've had enough of the Christmas music. It's normally about December the 2nd. But one song that grates me every single year is a song by John Lennon. I'm quite a fan of the Beatles. Don't mind them. They've been a huge inspiration for so many bands and groups. But there is a song that Lennon wrote called War Is Over. Let me just remind you of a few words. It's a song with this kind of utopian dream of the future. If we could just get along, all would be well. And this is what John Lennon wrote. And so happy Christmas for black and for white, for yellow and red ones. Let's stop all the fight. And then there's the refrain at the end. War is over if you want it. War is over now. 
there's something that connects to our hearts. We long for peace. But this passage is talking about peace. This message that the heralds and the heavenly hosts communicate is one of peace. But it's not just one on a horizontal level. It's one on a vertical level between the world and God. One of the truths that we don't like to actually think deeply about is a repeated refrain in the New Testament. And that is that every person, man, woman, boy and girl, is at war with our creator. We don't like to think about it. It's kind of a modern, unpalatable truth. But all through the New Testament, the writers are saying, we are at war with our creator. We don't give him the love and honor that is worthy of his name. We would rather be sovereigns over our own lives rather than treating him as sovereign over the all of creation. It's there in particular in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 where the Apostle Paul writes about the war within our hearts and how we treat God, not giving him the time that he deserves. Paul says that in our hearts there is a natural enmity between God and ourselves. We can display it overtly. We can say uh, in our practices, in our thought life, in our use of our resources, We don't give a monkeys about God. There's a new shop that's just opened over the road from us. Jo went there to have a haircut just recently. And she met somebody from um, our past. She went to Chesington Church and came up through the youth groups. And she told us how she's gone away from Christianity. And she doesn't give God the time that he deserves now in her life. It's very easy to do. We can do that overtly. But also we can do it with a religious veneer. That's far easier. It's easier because you can come to church, you can read your Bible, you can pray, you can wear religious clothes, but actually, for at least six days of the week, you live in one way, and on Sunday, you live in another way. And Paul says there is an enmity in our hearts that we don't give God the time that he deserves, we don't give him the authority that he has. We can live a good life thinking that actually, if we live in a certain way, we'll twist God's arm so we can win his favor. But whether it's overtly or subvertively, Paul says that in our hearts we are enemies to God. We are at war with God. That's why we need peace, verse 14 of chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel. And Paul says the difference between a Christian and a not yet Christian, a Christian and a non-Christian, a Christian and a religious person or an irreligious person is that they see this reality. They see that we are at war with God. And yet God has made peace through the cross. That's the difference between a Christian and an, a non-Christian, a Christian and a religious person. That we are at war with our creator, and yet he has seeked out actively to pursue us with his love and grace, and that's seen 2,000 years ago on the cross. We can't stand the idea that God is in control. We want to be our own rulers. And yet God in his grace pursues us and shows us again and again that his Rule is not heavy-handed. His love is strong. His grace is sufficient. His mercy is certain. And when a person sees that and sees that both our bad deeds and even our good deeds have been done with the wrong motives and that what we need more than anything else is not to work harder but we need grace, when a person sees that, that's when they become a Christian. A Christian is someone who sees that our only hope is in God and in his grace. That's the difference between a Christian and a religious person. You see, John John Lennon was partially right and partially wrong. 
We long for peace. And the war is over. But he's thinking about the wrong war. The war is over because of the cross. It's the war in our own hearts. That's the most severe war. That's what the Bible speaks about. That's our greatest need. And God has done all the running. He's got all the resources and he's pursued us and saved us for his glory and grace. And we have nothing but gratitude to say to him. And so... This is why the angels come and shout. What a chorus this would have been. Better than the Royal Albert Hall, I can tell you. Verses 13 and 14. There is the angel, a multitude in the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom God is well pleased, or as those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. Why? Because of his work through his son, this baby born in a cattle trough. That's what a Christian is, someone who sees the truth here and sees the peace that has been made by God because of the cross. A Christian is someone who sees and who's experienced God's grace and who know that his rule is loving and kind. And the difference that that makes is everything because God has made peace with us through his son and that makes us peacemakers. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's not just uh, something that happens to our own hearts, something that we're convinced of in our own mind. If God has made peace with us through the cross, that makes us peacemakers. So we can fan out in our workplace. We can be known in our streets. We can be known in Epsom and in Yule as peacemakers. Someone who goes out and is not so committed to our own rights that we trample on other people to get our own way. We're not so committed in the dog-eat-dog world of the workplace to kind of ignore people, but we're someone who actively goes out and seeks to make peace. Those who have experienced peace will be peacemakers. We're going to fan out into Epsom and York, I pray, and be known as peacemakers in the world. Because this is good news for all people. So how do you respond to the message? It's a message of peace, but it's also a message at the start of the chapter, or at the start of this section, verses 8 through to verse 12, that enables us to no longer fear. It enables us to no longer fear. Look closely now. This is really my main point, verses 8 to 12. The Greek here, right down in verses uh, 9 and 10, verse 10, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The, uh, the phrase there, verse 10, is um, megaphobic. It's megaphobic, excuse me, verse 9. Here comes the glory of God, and understandably, people are shaking in their boots. So you've got this word megaphobic, mega from magnify, great, glorify, and you've got phobos, meaning fear. And the Greek literally says, mega, fear, fear. Okay, if, if you're writing Greek and you want to kind of ramp up the volume, you double up a word. And so this is fear like you've never known before. This is not, I'm scared of the dark. This is awe. Awe is such an overused word. This is awe right here. The, um, I think it's the authorised version has, they were sore afraid. If you're over a certain generation, you may remember that word. They were shaking in their boots. They've seen something of the glory of God. This is not uh, toweling kind of uh, gowns here. This is fear. This is knee-knocking, heart-rendering, mouth-open fear just kind of pierces the bubble of the nativity scene a little bit, doesn't it? They were terrified, these guys, because they've seen something of the glory of God. They were sore afraid. And what does the angel say? 
as he comes. Uh, verse 10, fear not. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> fear not, don't be afraid. Why? Behold. Now this is really important. The angel knows how they're feeling. These are hard as nails guys. They're used to living outside. They kind of, they wouldn't wear North Face. They wear something kind of more sturdy than that. These would be army recruits. They're shepherds. And yet they are terrified. The angel knows exactly how they're feeling. And he says, you don't need to fear. You don't need to be terrified. Why? Behold. The angels are saying, let me show you something. Here is a message about someone who means you no longer need to fear. I know you're afraid, but if you look at, if you behold, if you see, if you understand, if you treasure, and if you ponder the good news about this baby, if you behold his glory, you never need to be fearful again. That's the message that the angels have come to say. Think about this across the whole Bible. Whenever God presences himself, reveals himself in a theophany, in a localized, special way, whenever God reveals his glory, people don't bark like dogs. People don't fall on their backs, losing control. They fall on their faces and they worship him. That's what happens when God's glory is revealed in the Bible. Think back right to the very beginning. Here's Adam and Eve. They're enjoying a perfect, unspoiled creation. They know God. I can't get my head around this. They know God personally, intimately. They know him just in a way that we never will until eternity. And yet, they are sold a lie as Satan enters into the garden and says, this is not the best thing. If you want to know real, true, and lasting joy, rule your own lives, become your own sovereigns, and then you'll know what real freedom is. And it's not freedom, it's captivity. But what happens when they believe the lie, when they take a bite of the fruit? What happens? Fear enters into the world for the first time. Fear that was not there when they were enjoying the perfect, loving rule of the Lord Jesus and of his Father and of the Holy Spirit. But fear enters the world. They had a perfect relationship with God, which means they never had a sleepless night. They never struggled with anxiety. Fear never paralyzed them. And yet now fear entered the world. What is the main reason that I struggle with anxiety and fear? What's the main reason that I can sit bolt upright in the middle of the night with sweat down my brow, not being able to get back to sleep? Why does that happen? I'll tell you why it happens. Because I don't trust God as I should. Why am I afraid of the future? Why am I still afraid of death? Because I don't trust God as I should. We heard just yesterday uh, a family friend has just found out he's got pancreatic cancer. He's probably got days or weeks to live. And he's not a Christian. The thing that grips me is the fact he's not a Christian, not the cancer. That's his greatest need. And I'm afraid for him for that reason. What keeps you awake at night? Because here's an answer to fear that we need not be afraid anymore. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They thought God was not good. They thought his purposes were not loving, that they were not going to enjoy his loving rule forever. They thought that he was not concerned with their best. He thought that God was a spoil sport. And so they took a bite of the fruit and the devil came in 
And they said, true happiness, Adam and Eve, is when you called the shots. And as a result, it was like an atomic bomb went off throughout the whole of creation, throughout the whole of the cosmos, as sin entered the world. They were struggling from that point on with their own self-worth. That's why they covered themselves with fig leaves or something like that. They brought down the shops. They were struggling to find approval one to another. They were struggling with envy. That's why they started to kill people in the early chapters of Genesis. Living without God means that we are often driven to fear in every level of our existence. I'm afraid that people will find out that I'm an imposter at work. I'm afraid that people won't love me, therefore I never get into a relationship. I'm afraid that you're going to think I'm a fraud, therefore I'm not going to deliver a Christmas card through the front door. I'm afraid that you're not going to think of me as a good parent, therefore I never invite you round. And so the list goes on. Fear grips us on every level of our life. And yet when 9-11 happens, when Paris happens, when something happens close to our own family experiences, it bursts our bubble of self-reliance and of self-control and of self-sufficiency and it shows us that actually we're afraid of a lot. We're afraid of our own mortality. And yet there's an irony that's happening here, a strange pattern throughout the Bible. We are afraid when we move aside from God's loving rule and when we rule ourselves, we are bound to fear. We're subject to the captivity and bondage of fear. And yet, there are other places in the Bible, whether it be uh, Adam and Eve or Moses or Elijah or uh, Isaiah or Mary or even the shepherds, whenever God appears... We are afraid, they say, wow, they are sore afraid when we are far away from God living our own lives, but we're also afraid when God comes up close. When God draws near, we're terrified. When we are far away, we're also fearful people. When we come close to God, it's a little bit like when you come close to an expert. You know if you're musically brilliant, there's always someone better than you? You know if you're a sports person, then you start to play with someone who plays Premier League football, you see how good they are and how poor you are. You know when someone like me, if you like DIY, but when you come next to a craftsman, they put you in the shade. That's what happens with God. Why is it that Isaiah wishes that he would just be nothing? Why is it that Mary gets in awe when the angel comes? Why is it that Moses has to take off his shoes at the burning bush when he comes close to God? Because when we come close to God, we see actually his beauty and our own darkness. We see his greatness and our insufficiency. We see his beauty and our ugliness. And yet here, the angel comes with a solution, verse 10 and 11. Here comes the solution. Fear not. Fear that's been throughout the Bible since Genesis chapter 3 that wasn't there in the beginning when we knew God up close and personal. Fear not. Why do we not need to fear anymore as Christians? What's the solution? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Friends, if you want to be free from the need to justify yourself every day, that's why we work so hard, so we've got a point of our own existence. If we want to be uh, free from competitive and comparison living, if only I could provide that for my family, if only I could be as good as the people next door. 
If we want to be free from fear and anxiety, if we want to be free from nightmares that are self-centered, here's the answer. Rest in Jesus' salvation. Rest in the gospel. Believe the gospel again. But how do we know that we can trust God, the one whom the angel comes and speaks of? Look at verse 11. This is why. Because this baby born to you, this is who he is. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. Now Luke is really careful about the words he uses. He's deliberate. He's intentional. And David said that the New Testament is written in Greek and the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But the Greeks, there was enough of them in the first century or so to to write the Old Testament in Greek as well. And it's called the, the Septuagint. And they were very careful about the words they chose to use for God's name, for the God of Israel, who's the God of creation, who's the God of promise and the God of power. And Luke uses the same word they use all through the Old Testament. It's the word kurios. Who is this child who the angels shout of, that the angels speak of? He's the Lord. He's God. This baby stretched out on the straw He is none other than the God of all creation. That's why we don't need to fear. He's God himself coming from heaven to earth. That's why they're shouting. That's why they're pulling out all the stops. That's why they're banging the drums, so to speak, and blowing the trumpets. Because they're saying, glory to God, verse 14, in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's well pleased. Why, verse 11? Because there's going to be a saviour born who's going to drive away fear, who's going to break the chains of bondage. God looked on our sorry estate and he wrote himself in the pages of history. That's what Luke 2 says. He didn't come just to embrace us. The Bible says he came to die for us. And he came to be rejected. He came, well, the Christmas carol says it best, Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. This is who the baby is. How will you respond to him this Christmas? He lost his glory so that unimportant people like me and you, so that we might enjoy his glory. He lost his peace that he enjoyed for all eternity past, so that we might know true and lasting peace. He was kicked out of the inn so that you and I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's the promise of the gospel. Friends, look at what he did for you. Look at who Jesus is again. And listen to what the angels say. Fear not. Why? I struggle with fear and anxiety so much. It's like a knot in my chest. Fear not for behold. Fear not for behold. I bring you news of great joy. There's a saviour born and his name is Jesus. And to the degree you treasure and ponder this truth, to the degree you know intimately this little baby whose name is Jesus, you will find those fears that grip my heart and grip yours, they will just begin to lose hold. And they will begin to loom less large. And they will lose their power. Here are three words for you. If you struggle with fear, anxiety, depression, if you're concerned about the future, if death is one thing that you've always struggled with. Fear not, says the angel. Behold. Let's pray. (coughs) 
Father, it's amazing that the birth of Jesus has changed absolutely everything. Fear grips my heart. Anxiety uh, just rears its ugly head most days. Tension, headaches come, all because I don't trust you enough. Please help me, help us to fear not, whatever shape that takes for each one of us, but to behold your beauty and your glory, to see again your power and your sufficiency, to see again the Christ child who died on the cross for us, that we would no longer be bound by sin, but we'll be able to fear not and to live in the light of his grace. Help us to behold his beauty again, I pray, this Christmas. Amen.